to me it felt like a moment between me and this beautiful predator it wasn't for the media or the papers or, or anything like that that's the first question did you take a photo and so it immediately puts you on the defensive because when you say no people say well, it didn't happen you're on the back foot of what's your little story welcome to big cat conversations we speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 64 of Big Cat Conversations. Two editions ago, we put out a call for any panther or puma sightings in France that we could include on this podcast. Well, we got two immediate replies from different regions and different years. Our first guest is Michael, who lives partly in Surrey, but also has a base in northwest France, about 40 miles south of Calais. Michael is going to discuss a Black Panther sighting near the edge of his local village in France last year, summer of 2020. So, Michael, thank you so much for getting in touch and welcome to the show. Well, I'm very glad to be here. Quite flattered that you want to hear my little story. Michael, before we get to the sighting itself, could you set the scene and tell us about the local area and tell us about some of the regional names and describe the landscape? We're talking about a small area of northwest France called Le Haute-Pays, which is the Haute-Pays of Artois. That just means highland, really. Mm -hmm. To be technical, if you know about the Weald and Anticline in England, you know, in other words, the chalkland of southern England in Kent and Surrey and Sussex, the actual name for that is the Weald and Artois Anticline. And this geographical feature runs across the channel and, of course, has now been severed by the channel for the last 12,000 years. But it's a continuation of that kind of landscape. So it's chalk, it's hills, little intimate valleys with villages tucked in the valleys, uh, woods on the tops, pasture, and then there's a littoral. In other words, there's a coastal area which is quite different. You have dune systems, you have marais, which are sort of marshes, and you have pine forests. In fact, one of the odd things about that coast, it's called the Opal Coast in France, mm -hmm. is that it has a superficial look as if it should be much further south. On a summer's day, you almost think it's Mediterranean. And so you contrast this dune and pine forest littoral with a downland, intimate, cattle breeding, farming interior. And that's the area I'm talking about. The whole area of Nor, Pas-de-Calais, Somme, Picardy, is called Les Eaux de France, which doesn't mean the heights of France, it means the top of France. And how interesting that you live in the Weald in both your time in England and your time in France, because where you live in the Surrey Hills is on the north boundary of the Weald, I presume. Exactly, yes. Um, I live on the North Downs and walk on them just about every day in Surrey, and I'm on the same hills in Artois. Exactly, I'm on the same hills. The way the land has been managed isn't quite the same, and the people aren't the same at all, but um, strange similarities as well. You're quite right. 
And you're still looking for a cat in Britain in your travels and walks, but we'll hear about the cat in France. So before we hear about the sighting, have you heard anything in terms of rumours and reports in France, in that region, before of big cat sightings? Or was it a complete surprise when it happened? Unfortunately, it was a complete surprise. I say unfortunately because if I had known what I know now and have researched since, I would have been just much more observant and much more busy in my follow-up. I had no, no idea. I'm, I'm walking from my house down to the bottom of the village, crossing a little bridge, on the way to get a, a baguette at the boulangerie. And that's where it occurred. You were about 50 metres away, were you? So I'm on a road just north of the little bridge in the middle of the village. Now, these are very diffused villages, so they're not really like an English village. The village contains farms, and it contains pasture, and it contains lots of potager, of course, which are sort of vegetable plots. So it's landscape with a village woven into it, rather than a village in the way we understand it. And I'm standing on this road down at the level of the little river. And to my northeast is a sloping pasture. It hasn't been cut. This is the first half of July. And if it ever is cut, it couldn't be done with a tractor because it's too steep. But the grass is medium long and it's facing south because it's in the north side of the village and the stream of the village, the valley of the village, is an east-west valley. So this is full sun. And being sort of four or five o'clock in the afternoon, the sun is over my shoulder in the southwest. So I'm looking across this pasture from the road. The animal is already making her way across the pasture. I didn't see her or him emerge from anywhere. She was already there out in the open of the pasture making her way from the west side to the east side, slowly climbing as she went. Now, there is a little bit of background that needs saying here. On top of the pasture, on top of the hill, there are some very distinct buildings. There's an ancient farmhouse with a tower. They say it's a fortified farmhouse. I actually think it's a windmill, but we'll leave that aside. There's a new cow shed which is actually very extensive, but you can only see a gable end from where I was. And then, nearest to me on the west side, there is an old castle mound, which approximates to a kind of Motton Bailey castle mound that you might get in England. And this is very overgrown. Brambles all round, shrubs all round. I'd be very surprised if anyone's been up it for years. They're not quite as interested in their medieval history as we seem to be. And this pasture tails off towards where I am, towards the western end. And at that west end, and I think this might be important, there are two abandoned fermets. Now, a fermet is a small subsistence farm, usually set around a courtyard, three sides of a courtyard. You've got a little house under a pantal roof, torshi walls, which is the local word for mud, daub, and then covered in show, which is the French word for um, lime, lime wash. And then the other little buildings around the courtyard are called the Petit Dépendance, and they would be things like a little barn, perhaps a cart shed, a little stable, a store, maybe a pigeonnier if they kept pigeons, that kind of stuff. 
And now they're abandoned. I think that might be important because I'm trying to work out where this cat came from and why. And that seems a pretty safe bet. Could have come from open countryside further west. Could have come from there. So it's about 50 meters away. I'm pretty confident about my measurements because I went to Google Maps. I used my own house as a yardstick. I came to the conclusion I'm about 175 meters from the farmhouse, 77 meters from the cowshed, 70 meters from the nearest part of the old castle mound. And this cat is 50 meters from me when I start seeing it, maybe 60, but that sort of range, going out to 75 to 85 meters away when I lose it as it rounds the shoulder of the pastured hill and disappears round the shoulder and into the grass is out of sight. And the whole event wasn't a snapshot. It was at least 30 seconds. Bit embarrassing this, because given that it was at least 30 seconds, I should be much better on detail than I am. But there we are, there's hindsight for you. That's basically setting the scene of, of where I am and what I'm doing and where the cat is. Can you take us through your thoughts when you saw this animal? What did you clock it as? What did you discount? What did you run through as what it could have been? And how quickly mm. did you conclude it's likely a cat like a black panther? I think the process is really quite interesting because I don't think you think in words. I also think you think about six things at the same time. So you've got a little tapestry of thoughts, but they're not words. You put them in words when you're trying to explain them to someone else later. Mm. And so you go something like this, but this is a slight parody of it. You go, I've never seen a deer in the middle of the village. Hmm. What's a deer doing anywhere at four o'clock, let alone the middle of the village? Why is that deer black? Why hasn't it got any legs? <laughs> uh, Gabby up at the farm hasn't got a great big, long, thin, black dog. Uh, why is its head so small? Why is it behaving like that? Why is it so zoned in? Why is it so methodical in its movements? And then you start thinking, that's a cat. And as soon as you think that's a cat, you go, well, a cat's a cat. But the village is full of feral cats. They're everywhere. And they conform to a certain type. You get a grey and tabby one. You get a white one, short haired, these things. You get ginger and white ones. They're small. They're scruffy. They're slightly persecuted. They're not welcomed in the houses. And you see them every time you leave your house. There's no way that you would mess yourself around, let alone mess anyone else around, by mistaking what I saw in that field with a semi-domesticated or feral cat. Just wouldn't do it. And what about a dog? And the sceptic would say, well, Michael, come on, this was a stealthy sort of dog that had broken away and was crawling through the grass. What would be your response to that? I'd say fair question, except for something I'll explain in, in a second. And I'm always reminded by what Cromwell said. He said, I beseech ye, think it possible ye may be mistaken. And I think that's a great adage for life, isn't it? Think it possible you may be mistaken. Yeah. Well, I'll talk about dogs. Dogs are all over the village, but they're not free range. In fact, when you get a free range dog, if that's the right word, it causes quite a fuss. People bang on your door and say, you know, Gally's got out. Did you let Gally out? 
And you say, no, I've never been near your house today. I didn't let Gally out. And they said, well, I'll probably never see it again. Dogs are kept in cages or pens or on chains in farmyards. They're not welcome in the houses and they're not free range. I'm not actually sure what they're for because everyone's got chickens, but these dogs don't have to protect chickens. I've never seen a fox and I don't think anyone else has ever seen a fox in the village either. In fact, they don't even take much care locking their chickens up. They've got geese as well, of course. So what are these dogs for? Some of them might be for hunting. I doubt it. Um, most of them. I think they're to protect the property from people walking onto it. I can't think what else they're for. They live what I think. I mean, I don't want to be rude about our neighbours, but I'm very slightly disturbed about the way some pets are treated in rural places. And um, these dogs don't have great lives. You wouldn't go up and stroke them. They're simply not walking about. Now, Gabby and Arno up at that particular farm, they have dogs, and I know what they are. They've got some rather scruffy um, patchwork collie types. They're generally speaking on chains in the farmyard. And when you walk past the farmyard, these things set off a terrible racket. The thing about this cat, I think, is it knew that because it was keeping a line. It was keeping this methodical line which made it completely invisible from the farms and the fairmets up above the pasture. The dogs in their cages and on their chains would never have seen it. And I think it knew that. And I think it was probably on a relatively habitual route. I thought at first it was following a scent. But I've sort of rejected that idea. On the one ground, I'm not sure that cats do follow scents. I don't know. You could advise me on that, right? Maybe right near its prey or not right near a bit of roadkill, but their nose is in the air for that sort of thing, but they don't follow scents like dogs do. And the other thing about dog following a scent, you know what it's like? It's lively, its tail's up, its head is moving, its nose is staccato, it's excited. This thing was much more zen than that. It was methodical, slow, slightly meandering, and the other thing about it was just the sheer length. I did slightly joke to myself because I, I, it looked very long for its width and its head was too small for a, for a dog. And I rather joked to myself that if I was to actually draw that animal accurately, people would look at the drawing and they would say, that's a thoroughly rotten drawing mm. because no animal could look like that. Yeah. The drawing that I submitted to you was a, Probably a thoroughly rotten drawing, but at least I'm quite pleased with certain aspects of it. I'm quite pleased that it doesn't lie. When I run out of things to try and put down, I stop. Thank you for the illustration, because what you've done for listeners to understand is put the top half of the black animal looking stealthy in the long grass and looks very cat-like, and you've put it in situ, in context, with the rest of the village. We're going to put that on the website because I think it's, you know, it's a great illustration mm. and it's got the sense of the French architecture, the French landscape there. So with your permission, it would be great on the reference and links page of episode 64 on Big Cat Conversations and people can see for themselves. Certainly. But, uh, you know, if I was to criticise it, looking at it now, it's not a Renaissance masterpiece. But I think the rump might be a little bit too otter-like. And... 
in reality, I was slightly more oblique to it, slightly more down and slightly more back. But as the little hill that you can see on the illustration describes a kind of semicircle, there were places, particularly in the first half of its progress, when it was pretty face on to me, although in general, it was walking away, if that makes sense. And what you said earlier about the moribund, semi-derelict, well, derelict structures that are sort of overgrown and no humans ever go and investigate them these days, are you implying that you think those would be good layup spots where it wouldn't be disturbed and it would be away from setting the dogs off? Yes, I'm certainly implying that. I mean, there is plenty of open land beyond and there's water in that open land and it's an area called La Terre Pourrie, in other words, the rotten land where you can't farm because it's too boggy. It could have come across from there, but equally it could have come from these little abandoned fermets. I mean, just to give you a bit of background, this peasant farming, this subsistence farming, doesn't appeal to the young. They tend to walk away. They'd rather live in the big towns nearby, you know, Douai, Lille, Boulogne, places like that. And so these places get abandoned. And because they're built of torshi, you know, mud, they do deteriorate extremely quickly. In the past, a scattering of English used to buy them and try and tart them up. But, of course, the English are mainly gone now. And I notice Belgians are slightly taking their place and um, moving in, who like the idea of a, a bit of a country life. But generally speaking, these things fall down. And they must be excellent habitats for all number of things. This isn't a very peopled landscape. There wouldn't be many people around anyway to see a big cat if one was there in the first place. It is a characteristic of rural France, which I'm sure your listeners will know, that if you come from somewhere like Guildford or Croydon or Stroud, you do wonder where everyone's gone. You arrive in a little town or a little village and you go, "Uh, has a plague just hit this place? You know, where is everyone? And... (laughs) You know, they're there somewhere. But the other interesting thing, a a local chap showed me a book. He had a book on the area from 1909. And I looked up the villages and I tried to be interested in his book. But one thing that did interest me was the population in every village I looked up was bigger in 1909 than it is today. This village is said to have 600 people. The commune is quite diffused, most of whom are retired the rest are farmers and subsistence farmers. It had 600 in 1909. Yeah, a far cry from the gentrified countryside we have in Britain in most places, in most accessible places. Very much so. One of the reasons I'm there. (laughs) Sure. And you were saying that you go and sort of switch off and chill out through the summer months there, and so you wouldn't be on a big cat Facebook group in France because you couldn't be able to get access to it. But... We don't think they have big cat Facebook groups in France anyway, but maybe this podcast might trigger something. Well, I know two people in the village with internet. Sure, (laughs) yeah. Well, can we get back to the panther? If you'd have thought about taking a photo, would you have been able to in the last few seconds of the event? I could have done. In fact, it did fleetingly cross my mind. I don't carry my mobile around because nobody particularly wants to talk to me, which is one of the beauties of life. And the other is that the reception, the rezo, as they say, is so appalling in that village that I have to go upstairs to the grenier, to the attic, if I want to phone anyone in England. And so I don't carry it round. If I had carried it round, would I have got a picture? Well, I'd have got something, 
60 meters to 85 meters. I would have got something. Whether it would have impressed anyone, I'm not sure. By the time you'd concluded it was something like a large black panther, mm. you would have had a few seconds of the event left to whip your phone out and take a picture, perhaps. I momentarily thought, do I run back to the house 100 yards, get my phone, run back, dismiss the thought completely, almost straight away, and just as well, really, because I wouldn't have seen anything whatsoever. I would have just missed the last three quarters of the event. Okay. Can we have any more further description of standout features of this animal? Yep. Okay, well, I guessed one and a half metres. I've been pacing it out on my sitting room floor. I can't fault it that much. It might be slightly less than that. I'm going to stick to my guns that it's not too far out, that measurement. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. You stick to your guns. Sun was on it, at least in the first half of the event, you know, because it was facing southwest going around the shoulder of the hill with the sun over my right shoulder. Had a bit of a shine on it. The shoulder blades were visible. The head looked small. Now, this worried me. I might be jumping the gun, but much later... I went to the internet to look up black leopards, melanistic leopards. And to be honest, I was quite disappointed by what I found. What I found were big, chunky-looking things with quite big structural heads on one end of them. Nearly all of them looking at the camera, because these are stock images of melanistic leopards. And I couldn't, in all honesty, look at that and say, that's what I saw. Now, of course, within a species, you're going to have all the variety possible anyway, between male and female, young and old. Yeah. I appreciate that. And perhaps between well-fed and emaciated. But I was disturbed that it didn't ring an instant bell. Yeah. It didn't ring an instant bell. And it was slimline. It was very sleek and slimline, you're saying, as well. Yeah. <laughs> Too thin for its length. But, you know, elegant, focused never raised its head, never stopped, never listened, never looked back. If it knew I was there, it had no opinion of me whatsoever. Carried on in this methodical manner. Which is very cat-like, and we have lots of witnesses saying that on this podcast. I think if we just keep to the head a minute, quite a lot of people make a good statement about the heads of these cats, and they say that something like indistinct and sort of boxy sort of angular but boxy and pug-like but indistinct so i suppose some female ones that, that are not chunky would have what you might describe as small heads i'm wondering whether we should completely rule out a black leopard i'll default to you on that because i'm no expert whatsoever the thing that i thought was round the thing that i thought was dogs don't have heads like that none of them not for a beast of that size yeah and remember, I'm seeing it from over its right shoulder mainly. So I'm seeing round. And I wish I could say I saw ears. I didn't see ears, so I didn't draw ears on my drawing. Because I was very conscious that, you know, I don't want to embroider the story. I don't want to push it further than I actually remember. I think we just have to be open-minded. We could say, well, we also sometimes discuss the super large, you know, giganticism in Felis catus, domestic feral cat. 
Is there something that's become a deer-killing size cat like that? Do you get hybridization between Felix catus and anything else? Well, yes, at a, at a smaller scale. Then there'll be the issue of, in that hybridization, would you get some kind of mutation? And would that be a fit, healthy cat, if it bred on especially? So those are the questions we can only speculate over, really. But there's enough snippets of DNA results which beg this question. And the other question it begs is black Puma Cougar mountain lion. A lot of the reports in the eastern states and northeast states of USA and eastern Canada seem to be black pumas. Uh, they could be something else, but the native cat there is the puma, cougar, mountain lion. If the big black cats are being seen, the first suspect should be a black puma. And they're obviously sleek cats. I think yours is a puzzle. I don't think we should struggle too much about the identity. It's just that you did certainly see one that was certainly capable of killing a deer from its size, presumably. Oh, certainly. Just going back to my, you know, think it possible you may be mistaken. This is what I saw of the head from a particular angle. I don't think one should rule out anything. Yeah, sure. You saw enough of the tail. Did you? Can you tell us what you saw about the tail? First half of it. It was down, not up. Yeah. It was presumably the second half of it, the bottom of it. You I mean, you could extrapolate from the vague shape you were looking at. At, that the second half of it was quite low in the grass. I mean, it might have been doing that on purpose, for all I know. And it sloped away from the body. As I said, the, the legs were not really very distinct because you're in medium long grass. It tapers down into the grass behind it. OK, what do you reckon in that landscape, knowing that landscape and the, the animals that are, are at large there, what do you reckon would be its main prey if it's living wild and uh, being a large predator, being a large carnivore? What, what's it snuffling? Okay, well, there's lots of roe deer. Chevrolet, they call them there. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of them. You see them every night when you go for your stroll. They tend to come out in the evening. As I say, they don't come into the village. Then there are lots of rats. Um, one of the main crops there is maize, harvested sort of mid to late summer, late summer more and grown for cattle feed, not grown for people. So they leave it standing a little bit longer. They harvest the maize, and the village fills up with rats. And everyone puts bait out, which I'm a bit dicey about. Old Gabby up at the farm blasts away with his shotgun. You can tell he's not shooting game, because the shotgun goes off every 10 seconds, and there wouldn't be a, a pigeon or, or a snipe in sight after the first two shots. Yeah. So he's blasting away at rats on his, on his grain heaps and on his fodder heaps and things like that. And they're a bit of a nuisance. In fact, the mayor actually distributes rat poison to every house. So rats, uh, what else? Well, cats, loads of cats. Some of these cats are born in my orchard. Mm. You get a knock on the door and somebody says, I've lost my cat and I think it's had a litter and I think it might have had it in your orchard. And sometimes they did. And sometimes they abandoned kittens in the orchard. In fact, I found a very miserable one and uh, looked after it and bought it home at great expense, where it's now sitting in a Surrey sitting room uh. in a very bourgeois sort of manner. But the other thing is, uh, just a little incident, there was a great ruckus outside at one time, a great fight going on. Being an Englishman, my first instinct was to pile in. <laughs> I said, um, what on earth's going on, Jean-Pierre? And he said, well, that bloke there, he says I've shot all his cats. And 
I said, well, did you shoot all his cans? And he said, of course I didn't. She's probably just taken them up into the meadows. She had six kittens and a cat. They never did reappear, by the way. These semi-feral animals, which are all over the place, must be a good part of someone's diet. Yeah, I mean, easier than a hare. You were saying on emails, there are no rabbits to speak of, but there are hares. Well, I've seen rabbits out on the coast. No rabbits. Hares are, are surprisingly bold. They'll hop through a courtyard to the road, turn left and go through another courtyard to someone's potager at the back of the house. Oh, and another animal which must be on the menu, uh, ramusque uh, muskrats, I think is an escaped American animal. It's surprisingly big. And they live by the springs of the little streams and in the little culverts. Koipu, a koipu. No, it's, it's not as big as koipu. Okay. I've seen koipu because I actually came originally from East Anger. These are muskrats. They're surprisingly big. You see them by the sources of the streams. I mean, they'd be easy to snaffle. It's doing some vermin control, isn't it? If there are too many feral cats, there's rats and there's muskrats, then it, all of those would be on the menu. They're good, healthy snack size for a black panther. It's not eating squirrels. There aren't any. It's not eating badgers. There aren't any. It's not eating foxes. There aren't any. Well, there might be. I mean, they occasionally see them disappearing into a covert up on the tops of the hills. But, you know, very, very rare. Isn't that interesting compared to Britain? All of those are abundant. Yeah, it just shows you there's plenty for a carnivore still. Yep. With a roe deer as well. Okay. Now, can we have your emotional reaction at the time and on reflection? How did you feel having seen it? And then what did you go away and do and tell and discuss with people? On the feelings side, exactly the opposite of what you'd expect. So at first, prosaic. In other words, you go, oh, look, well, that's interesting. What on earth can that be? Um, I must ask Arno next time I see it. Now I'm going to the boulangerie to get my baguette. <laughs> it's sowed a grain in your mind, and, and you turn it over, and you turn it over, and you turn it over, and you rerun the film of your memory, and you ask yourself questions, and you get more and more, I wouldn't say obsessed is quite the word, but you know what I mean? You, you get more involved in it, but later... That's the weird thing. I agree exactly about mine. I was surprised how unprovoked I was, actually, immediately. But sort yeah. of as, as the days and weeks and months unfolded, I kept on going back and thinking, did I really see that? That is remarkable, you know, when yeah. you think about it. And so, yeah, you, and you want to make sense of it, don't you? But anyway, it's your story. Well, just a, a little point on that. You did a, an excellent interview with a gentleman from Victoria in Australia. Um, Simon Townsend, yeah. Quite early in your series. Yeah. And he said something that always interested me. He said, people are offended by what they've seen. Hmm. He said, people are offended by what they've seen. I thought, that's an odd choice of word, offended. But I know exactly what he means now. You're disquieted. You're unsettled. You're an ordinary bloke. You've seen the world for quite a few years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, you've got the measure of most things. And then suddenly out of the blue, here's something that refuses to fit into any of your boxes. And you are offended. And do, do you know that bit that we all had to do when we were at school? You know, shapes that move slowly through the mind by day and were a trouble to my dreams. You know, Wordsworth writing in preludes. 
And he says it's a shape that moves slowly through the mind by day and were a trouble to my dreams. And the weird thing about that is he was talking about walking, or in that case rowing, in the Lake District, which he knew like the back of his hand, and then suddenly coming across something that he simply couldn't understand, that disquieted him, which upset him. And being a great wordsmith, which we're not, he managed to say in two lines what we fail to say by babbling for half an hour. Plenty of big cats in that area now for him to have reflected on. <laughs> Just to clear up, he wasn't talking about big cats. No. He was actually talking about a geological event. And he was just upset by something he saw, and it troubled him for day after day. And these images kept recurring to his mind as he ran it through again and again and again. And I can relate to that entirely. And, of course, it's then, when you find it so troubling, the prospect and the option of being in denial and removing it and eradicating it from your memory and thought process is there. Some people probably do take that. It's possible. But then pesky people like me come along and ask you all about it and want it documented. No, but it's a privilege too, isn't it? To be on this planet for 60 years and then see something which you weren't prepared for in any way at all is a privilege, isn't it? Yes. Well, a lot of people say that, don't they? A lot of people use that very word, it's a privilege. Now, did you tell local people and did you sort of tactically consider the implications or the shock for, for them and the disbelief and, and the impact on your status? How did that go? Oh, I don't care about that. They think I'm bonkers anyway. But I didn't go piling in. Yeah. I actually did very deliberately work out what I was going to ask. Yeah. And what I came up with was... Something like this. Qu'est-ce que vous avez déjà rencontré quelque chose en chassant que vous ne pouviez pas expliquer? Have you ever seen anything when hunting which you couldn't explain? Have you ever encountered anything? Have you ever come across anything which you couldn't explain? That was the question I asked, and I kept very consistently to it because I didn't want to ask a leading question. You know, it, it's bad anthropology. I use the same tactic with people fishing for what I'm doing in an area. I, sometimes I don't want to tell them, but if people are. I say to them, well, believe it or not, I am interested in unusual animals. And yeah, quite a number of people take the bait straight away and they say, what, you mean big cats like the panthers that are reported in the papers? <laughs> and like you say, it's not putting words in, ma in mouths and it's also no. uh, cushioning it if they don't want to take the conversation that way. Yeah, exactly. And the results of my little unscientific survey, where most of the people just straight away said no. One chap said something very interesting, I thought. He said, tu veux dire un grand chat? No, but do you mean a big cat? And I thought, that was a very funny thing to say because I hadn't mentioned big cats. He then went on to say that he hadn't seen one. But presumably, for, for that to be his instant reply, he must have heard about people who claim to have done. And then another chap said, yes, I did shoot something very strange uh, by accident. And I said, oh, what was that? And then he said, it was a red grouse. He said, they don't come from here. We don't have them. They come from Scotland. I don't know what it's doing flying over the Odepay, <laughs> but I accidentally shot it. So he shot a red grouse. So that's the end of my rather unscientific survey. Did you get people scoffing at the notion of it or were people open-minded or being polite and diplomatic or what, what was your judgment on the responses you got? 
Oh, they don't scoff. Mm. They're polite people. As I say, they think you're a bit strange. They just said, well, not really. Then they started talking about things like how close walls were and other things which were sort of rather adjacent to what you wanted to talk about. I didn't get any impression that, that I was being ridiculed. Well, can we go on to the wild boar incident? Because I think you found that interesting because that did provoke more animated discussion and interest. Well, well that's the thing, you see. I mean, we're walking half a mile east of the village along one of the uh, Rue Blanche, which is what they call the little chalk lanes which cross the hills. And um, my wife had to answer the call of nature. And she crossed a very short neck of a field into a wood. And then she emerged back and was walking back towards me on the Rue Blanche. And then out of the wood behind her came this absolutely enormous sanglier boar. And, it, you know, it was big. It was ginger and it was big. And it thundered. I shouted for her to turn around and she did. It was like being run at by something out of the Stone Age. It was almost like a, a sequence from Asterix. Uh, luckily, it wasn't interested in us, and it ran off, keeping to a low bowl of land, crossed the lane, went up a talus bank, and disappeared off towards a hamlet in the north. And I went back and I told my neighbour, Jean-Pierre, and he was incredibly interested. And he went up there three nights running, never saw anything, came back, talked to it. People talked about it. And he said, well, we see wild boar over there in the region of Bort, and we see wild boar down there by the coast on the marshes of Merlimo. In fact, I've got the head of one on my wall. But never seen one here, never seen one here. And I almost thought it would make the paper. And I became a little celebrity for a couple of days. But the cat, not the same response at all. I guess they could relate to the boar, whereas they couldn't relate to a black panther. It was indifferent. Yeah. Maybe they're a terribly practical thing. And what Jean-Pierre was thinking was, boar, that's a lot of food. Cat, that's not much food. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, can we just quickly ha have the perspective of hunters? Because a lot of people hunt and shoot in, in the season, which is September onwards, isn't it, through the winter months? My theory is this, that the oat pay is empty during the summer. It's not a tourist place. Nobody goes there. You go to the littoral. It's absolutely rammed with people. You can't park your car. This is the coastal region. Yeah. All the resorts are full. All the marais are full with walkers, and the dunes are full, the beaches are full. Come uh, September the 1st, what the French call la rentrée, everything ends. The shutters come down, the shops close, the apartments close, the ice cream man goes, the candy floss man goes, the beach is empty and it's deserted. So there you have the littoral, packed in summer, completely empty in winter. On a specific day. And the other interesting thing about the littoral is that it's mainly nature reserve. So you won't get hunters there anyway. So you can go from Etampe to San Gabriel to San Cecil, uh, from San Cecil to, um, you know, Echion, wherever, Ardlo, Condet, nature reserve. Yeah. June's a nature reserve. Whereas the Oat Pay, 30th of September, so a few, few, you know, a couple of weeks after La Rentrée, it fills up with hunters. Every field, they're all in bright orange. Then they've got the 12 boars and they're blasting away. Now, my point is this. If you had any kind of naturalised cat in that environment, just as it would understand the, the way that the deer move through the landscape, it would understand the way that humans behave in the landscape. 
a naturalized cat would spend its summer in the haute pays, and it would spend its winter in the warm, deserted, and protected littoral nature reserves. Which would have good prey availability as well. So when the hunters are about, I dare say there aren't any cats there. Okay, well, that that is very interesting. And of course, it does then beg the question of the behaviour of this puma uh, cougar mountain lion one uh, reported a month ago, uh, just a little bit south of you. So we can come on to that in a minute. Yeah. How have you left it in the local village? Nobody else has prompted to be on vigil for it. And if anybody ever reported one again, obviously that would interest you. But you're not sort of doing anything methodical and systematic in terms of following it up because you don't feel it would be productive. Uh, no, I haven't. No. I mean, part of that's practical. You know, since Brexit, you're thrown out after 90 days and then you have to wait 90 days before you can go back. Yeah, you're not there as much. Actually putting anything in place. I did ask a, a neighbour if they could snip things out of the Voix du Nord, which is the local paper. Just put those aside for me. Not apart from that, no. And they're a little bit precious about land. Mm. You don't quite have the liberty to wander that you do here. Yes, and they don't have rights of way in the sense that we do. I've never worked them out. I mean, I've been there 30 years and I still to work out what track I can go down and what track I can't. Okay. Can we then get your reflections on the recent Puma, alleged Puma sightings, of which there seem to be quite a few, which would imply it was a a recent sort of escapee or recent release, because if it was easier to see, it was presumably not as stealthy and furtive as a naturalised one, or one that has been out for a while. Yeah. It was 10, 20 miles south of this area, wasn't it? Yes, 15, 10, 15, the Corsiers. It runs east-west. If you like, it's the river that runs along the northern edge of Picardy. And below it, you've got the OT. And below that, you've got the Somme, which runs along the southern edge of Picardy. So they're the rivers that flow east-west in that part of the world. And this is the Conch, the top one. You've got the Haute Pay on the northern side of it. And you've got going towards the plains of Picardy on the south side of it. So when you read that and saw it in the, in the newspapers and everything, did it remind you of your sighting? But, of course, it was travelling in the other way. It was sort of heading for the hunters in hunting season, in a way, wasn't it? It might have been. There is an indication from the sightings that it's heading west-east. It was described as a juvenile mountain lion. Yeah. And given what the gendarmerie said at various times, I think you might assume, without being too cruel, that they're not biologists, really. Yeah, we don't know whether that thermal image was one or not. It was alleged to be, but it might not have been. It could have been a cat at any scale. Mm. But anyway, it's seen by quite a lot of people. It's put down as a juvenile mountain lion moving west to east up the Conch and dropping down to the OT at one point. So it's seen at Frévon, which is on the Conch, but it's also seen at Oxy, which is on the OT. In other words, it's heading south as it heads east. Now, the prefect of Pas-de-Calais, I think that was a printing error. I think they mean the prefect of Eau-de-France. But anyway, it said that the animal could be sampled. And I think that must be a euphemism for shot, because I don't know how you sample an animal like that without shooting it. The local hunters were told they couldn't shoot it. And so the hunters of the Cosh Valley organised themselves into groups and offered themselves to act as beaters if they were needed. Yeah, to flush it out or whatever. 
Yeah. The farmers had something to say. So that's terribly unusual, isn't it, for a French farmer to have anything to say? <laughs> but anyway, they they said they weren't interested in it at all, and they were going to leave their cattle out on the high pastures as long as they could into winter, which told me two things. One, it tells you that this is cattle country, not sheep country. Yeah. Nobody mentions sheep. And the other is that these these people honestly cross their mind that this thing might eat a cow, which I think is probably quite unlikely. Yeah. A heartening part of the story, there are two heartening parts of the story. One is that two hundred to 300,000 people signed a petition saying, we don't want our cat shot, yep. which is good. And the other heartening part of the story is it vanished anyway. Which they all do. This cues the next point, that there's been several others in France in recent years that where the same thing has happened. There's been an initial flurry of press reports of one being seen, sometimes a Sandy Brown Puma one like that, or sometimes a Black Panther-like mm. one. And again, it always peters out. You never hear a resolution. They just seem to vanish. And were they escapes or releases more recently out? Or were, or were they part of a small naturalising population? so difficult to know but what's your take on all all of this well my take is that i'm inclining away from the idea that these are escapees if you look at the very well documented case of 2000 which took place in and around the village of saint sauveur which is near amiens somme so it's the two rivers down Conche-Outi-Somme. yeah now there you have a couple of animals hang on i thought that was in norman but that was in normandy wasn't it that one on the somme Oh, right. So still quite close to you. Oh, yes. I mean, you can drive there in an hour. Fair enough. Yeah. OK. Not quite Normandy, really. Still sort of the southern end of Picardy, I would say. OK. Um, now, it appears on a farm, two of them, a pair. And they're seen fighting. Well, they're probably playing, rolling around, fighting. What colour, Michael? That, well, that's it. A gendarme who later watched them for five minutes described them as grey. He said they were grey with almond eyes. I don't know if he meant almond-shaped eyes or almond-coloured eyes. But anyway, grey, he said, other people have said sandy. Ah, okay. So I guess these are juveniles, and I guess these are siblings. And I guess from the fact that they're seen playing around, not just by the farmers, Mr and Mrs Ladowski, if you want the word, but also by schoolchildren, also by gendarmes, lots of people. I think that might suggest that these are quite relaxed animals in their environment and they're juvenile and they're playing around. They've either still got a mother quite close or they've just been kicked out, but they haven't learned yet to be savvy and scared of man. And I think that to a degree, only to a degree, I'll I'll own you that, echoes the Conch case. Not savvy enough to keep out of people's sight. Mm. And there's a question I wanted to ask you, which is, if you do have a population of these things established in Picardy, when would they breed? And how long would they stay with the mother before they were made to fend for themselves? And the other question is inbreeding. What would be the signs of inbreeding and a low population is going to struggle to be viable? It's always tricky when it's a much lower numbers reported because the sample size isn't so big and you're wondering about viability, that sort of thing. But mm. in, in terms of your direct question, well, pumas, mountain lions don't have a breeding season. 
they can breed all year round. Leopards the same, really. Okay, we're we're talking about temperate environments where there's colder winters, but I think with a low population, they'll still breed whenever they get the chance. Basically, when the when the male finds the female in estrus, he's not gonna. They're not gonna wait and think. Oh, but it's slightly better and optimum conditions for us to have young in uh, early summer because there's more prey around through the summer months. You know, they're, they're not gonna think. You know, it's not gonna evolve like foxes, for example. In, in Britain it has for that sort of thing so I don't think there's really a breeding season and how old until they're independent yeah uh, 18 months two years that's the general rule your mother is teaching them to kill and, and uh, to hunt from when they're a few months old and then they sort of hone that through one year to 18 months so they can be cast out and leave mum from yeah 18 months sometimes up to two years Two together could be of the same size, could be one of the sub-adults that's as large as its mother mm. for the last two or three months. So They're claiming a metre, these people. That's all. Yeah, well, a metre long in the body is fine. Medium, small female type size. A male should be normally bigger, a bit longer in the body. But this is where it gets interesting because they managed to collect hairs and samples, including pad prints. Yeah. And they send them off to the uh, Musée de, des Sciences Naturelles in Paris. And the head of mammals there is a Monsieur Trenier or Trenier, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And they're analysed. The hairs, the hairs are quite long, by the way. The hairs are six, uh, six centimetres. And he analyses the hairs, and he says these are domestic cats. Well, they might have got the wrong hairs. I thought that. Mm. How do they know they got the right hairs? Yeah. But then he said this, which is very interesting. He said, you know, given where the hairs must come from on the body, he said, you have to assume these animals are, this is the quote, 20 to 25 kilos. That seems very big. My Labrador's 30 kilos. Well, and then he ends up with this quote. This is our man in Paris. He said, it is possible there are a group of animals the size of pumas wandering around Picardy, the head of natural history at the Musée des Sciences Naturelles. That is quite a statement. Yeah, thank you for that. I wasn't aware of that. If we can put the source of that on our website, we will do, uh, if if you can point me to that. I'm just reading archive stuff. I mean, you know, it's 2000. Again, it just begs more questions, and it, it does imply that this topic's got history in France more than we might think. You know, are there just the odd few vagrant cats at any one time, or is there some breeding going on and something that needs monitoring and uh, understanding? And of course, the problem is with less sightings in France. Well, as we're saying, there's, it's not such a populated countryside, so there'll be less people to report them. But also, I suspect, just like in Britain, if people had sightings, some people would elect not to declare it, not to mention it to anyone. So there might be more than we know about. What we'll do on the podcast is just keep an open invitation for anybody who's English-speaking and and in France who's visited France or lives there, uh, partly lived there or has lived there in the past, who has had an encounter or a friend or contacts had an encounter and they can tell us about it. They'd be very welcome. It would be very nice to explore France some more and take this subject further. So thank you for your introduction into it all. It really has felt like a visit to part of the French countryside from your evocative descriptions. Mm. And A word of the week. We've got sort of an equivalent to ephemeral beasts. Is that right? It's more or less direct. 
I just took it from the Vaginor, the paper. You know, they talk about bet ephemer and they talked about bet phantom. It just means ephemeral animals. I mean, bet really translates better as animal than beast. Okay. It sounds a bit like Beauty and the Beast if you translate it as beast. It's ephemeral animals, bet ephemer. And the word ephemeral is more or less the same as, as in English. It comes from a, a Greek word, which is ephemeros or ephemeris. And ephemeris in Greek actually meant diary. It gets the idea of something that, that happens over a short period of time. It basically means something that doesn't last very long, fleeting or transient. Yeah. But it also infers ambiguous. Was it there? Was it not there? Like a mist. Was it real? Was it an illusion? Why can't I quite get a handle on it? I think it's a good word, ephemeral. Yes, yes. A nice term, ephemeral beast, ephemeral animal. We normally tend to use it in British, in a biological, ecological sense, for plants, actually, for ones that are, you know, only out very briefly. And so, yeah, well, thank you for that. that that's nice. It's those double senses. Fleeting and short-lived is a literal one. Yeah. Ambiguous and not quite defined is a slightly more poetical one. Not far off from how we use liminal as well, perhaps. And we use liminal in one of the titles of the the episodes recently. Betwixt and between and, and sort of at the threshold. I mean, not quite the same, but it's um, begging the question, you know, is it there, isn't it there sort of thing. On the edge of things. Exactly, yeah. There's another lovely French word I always think, crepuscule. Oh, yes. That period where it's not really day, it's not really night, and... You know, as Shakespeare says, how often is a bush supposed to bear? You know, the crepuscule. <laughs> we use crepuscular, as in dawn and dusk. Yeah, twilight, dawn and dusk, crepuscular. Yeah. You're reminding us that it has a French... I think it's taken from the French, probably. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah well, we're petering out. Thanks ever so much for all of this and the introduction to uh, the French situation. And is there anything else we've not covered that you'd briefly like to conclude on? Anything else you'd like to say finally, Michael? Only a very little thing. You know, I've been in Surrey 40 years. The Surrey Puma must have started all this off. I've walked every day, never seen a thing. Rather miffed about that. <laughs> never seen a thing. Yes. Um, but down the road, you know, between Rygate and Dorking, you've got... Buckland and there's a there's a river there called the Shagbrook and the Buckland Shag has been annoying people on the road between Rygate and Dorking for three hundred years and it's black and it's a beast and it's it leaves you with a just a, a final funny little question. I mean, what's been annoying people for three hundred years? Are they all liars? Mm. Is there an animal there? Was there an animal there? Were there generations of an animal there? Or are we dealing with something with that kind of myth completely different? Yeah. Something something like an archetype, something that comes from within us rather than from within the woods of Surrey. Yes. Myth may have something to do with archetypes. Absolutely. And I think uh, the Black Dog reports of the past, you know, what was that all about through history? Mm. And we do, we do want to look into that more in a future podcast. That'd be very interesting. Well, that, that one you've just mentioned. Called the Buckland Shag. Obviously, the local Morris dancing troupe is highly delighted by its name and uses it as the name of the Morris dancing troupe. Yeah. It's basically a black beast that tends to tends to annoy travellers at Buckland on the road between Rygate and Dorking. It's been doing it 
for hundreds of years. A bit like black shuck in Norfolk and Suffolk, I suppose, that sort of thing. Uh, no doubt they're cognate. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I think we're done and really interesting. And I hope we get some follow-up. be lovely to return for a France edition in the future. And we'll, we'll just keep our eyes out for anything in the French press and uh, any follow-up to this. You're back there next next summer, are you? Yeah, I don't do winter there too much. I'll go back towards the end of March. OK, we'll keep in touch if, if anything occurs. Can I thank you on behalf of everyone for your work? I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm sure you've done more good during the last two years of COVID than you would ever care to admit. It's very nice of you. Thank you very much for that. I have said before, I mean, it is a team effort. Guests and, and a lot of listeners uh, give me a lot of support, and, and the show is about the guests, as you've just demonstrated. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. Well, it's lovely if it is appreciated, and, and thank you for the feedback. We'll keep on the case. Thanks very much. Okay, straight away we can mention that another episode with a big cat sighting from France is scheduled, so we'll be coming soon. That one has a large black panther incident from mid-southwest France from a few years back, and one of the witnesses from that one, who is our guest, also had a close-up sighting in County Durham, which he also describes in that edition. So more from France soon, but anything else from France is always welcome, of course. Now, it's time to admit my shameful error at the start of episode 62, when we were talking about the Wirral Peninsula, west of Liverpool. Because, as many or most or all of you will know, the song Ferry Cross the Mersey was not by the Beatles, as I stated. So big apologies to Jerry and the Pacemakers, who had that hit in 1965. I'm afraid it's a stark reminder that this podcast should definitely be avoided if you want anything on popular culture, past or present. So moving quickly on, I'm always keen to give a shout out to the excellent Missing Panther podcast. And episode 8 has just become available. This new Missing Panther edition features sightings in Western Australia. And in particular, it focuses on the work of the late David O'Reilly, who was an experienced and very fine journalist. His book, Savage Shadow, followed events in the 1970s in a remote farming community of Western Australia when pumas were regularly seen and sheep kills experienced. The case became known as the Cordling Cougar. The book is genuinely a gripping read because you feel you're with the local people, hearing from them and sensing their emotions as an embedded journalist, which is part of how David O'Reilly worked to prepare the book. So Savage Shadow is recommended reading for your Christmas list. It's available from booksellers on the web and it's great news that Missing Panther podcast from Australia is revisiting the Cordling Cougar case. Okay, I know it's been busy recently around Britain with various big cat reports. Coming soon, we're going to hear from eyewitnesses of a fascinating recent case in Suffolk. Just happened in November when a black panther was seen in the coastal marshes ready to go for the arriving geese. The cat's behaviour we can hear about in that one will be very useful to consider. Also coming up, we have more from different parts of Scotland, and we also have a soldier's past report while on a nighttime military training exercise on Dartmoor. OK, time to close out now, so thanks again to our guest Michael, 
and you can see his excellent illustrations on the Big Cat Conversations website on the Refs and Links page. I hope everyone's doing okay out there. Look forward to being back soon. Thanks for listening and bye for now.